B.J. Novak, he did a lot of research here. He, he made research trips, which is kind of a formal way of putting it, to not just Texas, but West Texas. He was way out there. And so when you have something like a Whataburger or, you know, these very regionally specific things, he wasn't just like, you know, Googling that and, and, you know, doing that kind of internet research. He was actually there traveling and visiting, wanting to pick it up. And I think that's actually the strength of the screenplay is that it feels lived in that way. It feels like this is the actual culture. And admittedly, it's been kind of, you know, spoofed to a degree, but, but there's affection in that as well. And so it, it really has that kind of plausibility in that respect. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Vengeance and DC League of Super Pets, starting off with Vengeance. I don't know, Mike, is Vengeance a good place to start? It seems like it sounds a little ominous. Now, the big thing about this movie is that it's written, directed, and starring B.J. Novak, who a lot of people know from The Office and from the newsroom and some other stuff. And Mike, where do you want to start with Vengeance? Well, let's start with P.J. Novak. <laughs> I first became aware of him, as most people did, from The Office. And in fact, I had taught a course called The Cultural History of Television. And The Office was one of the shows we used. And the reason specifically was it is so much, obviously, about office life. And that whole segment of the course we talked about, you know, we had a, a segment of the course like, you know, domestic life, family sitcoms and so on. But then we had a segment of the course with office set shows where you have a different kind of family, a family of colleagues, if you will. And not to, to belabor the point, but one of the highlights, obviously, of the office was B.J. Novak. I mean, so we all got to know him. Now, I actually got to know him personally by way of actually meeting him in 2014. He came to Hopkins and he was talking about a collection of short stories that he had just published. He talked about various things, but we talked for a little bit and, you know, watched the public program with him. The reason I, I mention that in particular is when I think of B.J. Novak, I think about a writer as much as a performer. Indeed, when we were using the office in the classroom or just when I watched it on my own, I thought it's a really well-written show. It's just like really, really well scripted. And then of course the obvious for me reminder, well, yeah, I mean, who's writing this show? Well, Novak, you know, is there on, on the writing team. So he has that kind of, and also on that show, he was a co-producer. So think about him in multi-hyphenate terms. So even though, you know, we're inclined to talk about him as an actor, for me always, it was like actor, yes, but writer and producer and just all around talent there. And somebody who really, you know, it was easy to talk to. And as I talked with him, I, I realized that, you know, he's got a kind of on-screen charisma. The camera likes him. Now, in terms of this particular project that we're talking about with that ominous title, as Marie mentioned, in a recent interview, Novak talked about this, the fact that he was best known for that TV show. He also has had supporting roles in several movies, but I emphasize the word supporting. He's not like a star actor. You kind of recognize him. It's like, oh, there he is. I know that's B.J. Novak from The Office, right? But, but it's in the midst of a, of a movie where there are other people who are very much front and center. And indeed, you know, there have been films like Knocked Up and Saving Mr. Banks and so on and Glorious Bastards, where he pops up on screen for a bit. And the recent interview I was just alluding to is where he actually talks about this as a kind of transition for him. Because after all, with Vengeance, he's the, the director, first time directing a feature film. He's the star. It's the first time he's had a lead role in a movie. And of course, he's the writer as well. And so in this interview, here's what he said, quote, 
I'm very much a reaction shot guy. I've never been a point of view character, close quote. And I found that really incisive because when you're supporting character, oftentimes you learn that you don't get the best lines of dialogue. You don't get the most amount of screen time. You're playing the foil, whether comic or not, to the lead. And you sort of stand off to the side and the lead kind of you know, carries the scene and then they go to the reaction shot. And you might have a snappy line, but oftentimes it's just like a facial reaction as you just, oh, you know, you respond to something clever that the lead has said. And I really found that kind of refreshing when I thought about it, that, you know, he's so accustomed to that kind of reaction shot guy status that to finally have leading man status in a film that he's directed himself, he is front and center, like almost all the way through. So let me just mention all that by way of a kind of, and in fact, well, you know, some years ago that I talked with him, he was already, you know, as a published author, and he's also published a children's book and so on. He already was looking towards projects that Moore had, frankly, himself front and center, you know, whether it's the writer of a book or now as the director and screenwriter, and trying to push up and move up to that next level. In that same interview, it was in the New York Times, uh, the uh, distributor of the film Blumhouse had a quote from the studio executive. We said, you know, when you think about it nowadays, and I don't want to, I don't want to bash superhero movies, but, but the point that this, this executive was making was so many of the movies now are special effects driven, superheroes, etc. And even oftentimes when there are, whether action adventures or comedies or what have you, so often these are properties, these are films based on earlier and better known properties, based on a TV show, based on a, a comic book character, based on something in anime, whatever. He said, what's really unusual now, and it's kind of sad in some ways, is that there are very few original comedies. And he said, one reason he's hoping that this film, Vengeance, you know, gets an audience is that it's so nice to have a film that was like basically written from scratch, right? It's not based on anything before. It's it's really, whether you like it or not, it's something original. So with those observations about that film, and I keep smiling at the title because the title is much more ominous than the film itself in a lot of ways. But with that being said, let me turn it back over to you, Marie. Well, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you think of him as a writer because the strongest part of the movie is the screenplay which is hilarious. But what he is kind of bringing over from his role from the office is that sense you have from that show where every character in it is sort of flawed, but that makes him likable. And that's actually where he, that's this jumping off point. He could be the same guy from the office, that actual character. But what made the movie for me, and I always sit in the way back in the corner so I don't bother anybody if I'm taking notes on my phone about the movie. There are so many great Texas jokes in there. And I have family in Texas. So I'm texting my cousin all of these details, just laughing at so many things he just got so right. Like, I mean, even bringing up the Whataburger and the scene, you know, later in the Whataburger and the big hair and the rodeo where every sponsor's name has something energy in it. There were just so many great moments in terms of the writing that were just very, very witty. And, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before, Mike, we see so many superhero movies. It's nice when you get to watch a movie that is written for adults to laugh at. And it does a really good job of it. But getting back to the title, Vengeance, you know, it's about a guy who's had a, you know, brief relationship with a woman who then dies and her brother calls him because they think that he's her boyfriend. And he can't seem to talk his way out of it. So he ends up going to the funeral and getting sort of sucked into the family of this woman who wants her 
death investigated and avenged. So that's sort of the setup. And then, of course, what happens is, you know, the fish out of water story, you know, the way he doesn't understand, you know, how what college football means to people in Texas. There's so many really great sight gags and wordplay. Mike, what was your sense of the screenplay in terms of the highs and the lows? Well, Marie, following up on, on your initial observation, he did a lot of research here. He, he made research trips, which is kind of a formal way of putting it, to not just Texas, but West Texas. He was way out there. And so when you have something like a Whataburger or, you know, these very regionally specific things, he wasn't just like, you know, Googling that and, and, you know, doing that kind of internet research. He was actually there traveling and visiting, wanting to pick it up. And I think that's actually the strength of the screenplay is that it feels lived in that way. It feels like this is the actual culture. And admittedly, it's been kind of, you know, spoofed to a degree, but, but there's affection in that as well. And so it, it really has that kind of plausibility in that respect. When he uh, goes down there, also what he's thinking about is, you know, uh, thematically what works really well in a comedy. Now, if you go back many years, one of the, the staples, one of the standards generically in American comedies and, you know, dramas sometimes as well, but particularly in comedies, was the contrast between city and country. Go back and watch Hollywood comedies of the teens, 20s, 30s in particular. Demographically, those were the very decades when more and more Americans were leaving the farm and going to the big city. You see that demographic shift. And by the 1920s, more people live in cities than, than on farms. And so films picked up on that. All of the, and again, we're talking about what can be very agreeable under best circumstances, uh, stereotypes of you know country life and city life, but playing them off against each other. Well, the equivalent today, of course, would be, you know, red state and blue state. And so at the very beginning of this film, Vengeance, you, you have his character, who is a writer for the New Yorker magazine, which actually DJ Novak has written for. So he's writing close to, to home, close to the heart here. Anyway, the opening scene, he and John Mayer play these two Manhattan sophisticates who are at this party and very much a, a New York a hipster kind of party. And they're, they're really brutally honest with the way they, they have this scripted and acted. It doesn't reflect well in the characters, in other words. The fact that they're talking about the women they've hooked up with. And these are all such superficial, like, oh, yeah, there's so-and-so and this and that. And it's almost like scrolling through the names. Well, back to Marie's earlier point, this is how this woman's name would end up, like, you know, on her phone, social media, what have you. And for him, it was just another hookup, a woman he went out with a few times and barely knows. But of course, as Marie said earlier, her family, I mean, she's died of what may be an accidental overdose, but as Marie says, the family suspects murder. It becomes a kind of mystery story that way that gets him pulled down to, to Texas. But the fact that initially you have these people in New York who, you know, whatever they think of Texas, it's not complimentary, right? I mean, it's, it's really that kind of negative stereotype. Then when he goes there, of course, his initial observations are along that line, like, what have I walked into? This is another country, not just country, but another country. And then, though, as he spends time with the family, they are so, at first, seemingly eccentric, oddball, call it what you will, but eventually realizes their sincerity, their honesty, their goodness, if you will, and he gets pulled into that. Now, that is the strength of the screenplay. However, I've got to quickly add that even though I really enjoyed this film, there are places where I find it overstated and even borderline implausible, certainly facile with how it develops things. Let me just give one very quick and kind of immense example of this. Namely, at the very beginning of the film, 
it's understandable that her family would misunderstand. They would think he was a serious boyfriend. He's got to come to Texas for the funeral and so on. But how readily he acquiesces and goes. And the narrative hook, which is meant to sort of explain it, is once he's down there, he's been thinking about starting a, a podcast. And as he talks with his New York producer friend, they're thinking this would be a great subject. The fact that, you know, there's this woman who's, who's died under mysterious circumstances, perhaps, in Texas, and what if it is a murder, and what if he essentially does investigative journalism, it could be a really good ongoing podcast. And there are some really uh, incisive, really funny aspects of this as a storyline. Uh, Issa Rae plays his New York producer, and they seem to have an unlimited budget for podcasts. So I won't say I'm envious, but I've, I made note of it. They have, seem to have a considerable staff, and I was sure, take the fly down there, stay as long as you need. You know, it's like it all goes on expense account. But anyway, you know, as subject matter, it seems promising. But one of the more incisive uh, comments is when she, as the producer, is contemplating, do we want to do this as a podcast? How's it going? Do you think there might have been a murder, whatever? She says this quote, a dead white girl the holy grail of podcasting, close quote. And again, this is a film that's really sensitive to those nuances of, of our popular culture and what pulls in an audience. And, you know, by way of demographics and racial demographics, you know, you have this, you know, black producer and this, this white investigative reporter, but she's acknowledging overtly the fact that, you know, in a commercial sense, this will sell, right? Audiences will want to, to watch this. But as that storyline develops, I won't say I like the film less to a dramatic degree, but I did find myself kind of tapering off with it because there are some plot twists and there's some characterizations that become rather caricatured, rather overstated, sometimes implausible in terms of some of the twists and turns without spelling them out. And I just felt that the film was getting a, a little bit thin and a little, a little overly sentimental in that respect. It wasn't quite as tough-minded as it had been earlier. But having said all that, it's, it's a matter of a film that starts off really well. And I think for the most part does always entertain the audience. And for me, it was like just mildly disappointing as it went along. How about for you? Well, I absolutely love Issa Rae and I love her in this. And I love the way, you know, in terms of contrasting, you know, country mouse, city mouse. When they do the scenes with Issa Rae, you get the sense of that other world that he inhabits where, you know, it's a cutthroat world and you have to try to get the story, bag that story, get people to say things in, in the microphone so that it will make for a good story all of that sort of the manipulation aspect of things and not really being quite upfront with the people that you're recording about what you're really trying to get to. I also thought the same thing about the big plot hole, which was in, in case, and maybe I missed something, Mikey, and you can tell me, the woman's brother calls DJ Novak's character to tell him that, you know, she's dead. And then when he gets there, you find that her phone is locked. And there's, so there's a whole lot of screen time devoted to What's the password? What could it be? What could we try? What, what, what haven't we tried? So I'm thinking, how did her brother ever find his phone number and call him in the first place if the phone was locked for most of the movie? And I didn't think about it while I was watching it, but coming back over it later, it was like, wait a minute. It all kind of falls apart with that, with that one plot development. Did you notice that too, Mike, or did I, did I get that wrong? No, I mean, I actually had the same reaction that when I said it was forced, it just seems like you know, he had this casual relationship with the woman and, and her family somehow becomes aware of the fact that, that you know, he's a name that, that she has and he must be the boyfriend and he's got to come to Texas for the funeral. But then as you actually start to parse out the details, as you've just done, 
it doesn't quite add up, does it? It doesn't quite make sense there. And it's not just a minor hole in the plot. That's a major hole because it was my earlier observation that this really sophisticated, snarky New Yorker who only knew this woman for a few dates, he's not just going to jump on an airplane and go down to wet, not just Texas, but West Texas for a funeral. It never quite made sense to me. So let's put it this way. I'll be generous in putting it this way. Whether the phone was locked or unlocked, whether they had immediate access to his name or, or it was something later. I mean, I realize one's more extreme than the other by way of you know scenarios, but in either case, to me, it just seemed highly unlikely that based on what we know, this character played by B.J. Novak, that he would just go to Texas like that. I mean, what, what's your sense of that, Marie? Because that's a case where you can get into the technology of it. Like, how did they know? And, and I, I wondered about that, too. And I thought, is there like a, a millisecond that I missed? I had the same reaction as you, like somehow that would explain it. But let's say that it was explained. Let's say somehow they were able to, you know, somehow his name popped up somewhere. Would he still go down like that to Texas? I mean, what do you think? It just seemed to me like I keep calling it borderline implausible, but I'll emphasize the implausible. It was almost like a screwball comedy where you just kind of go with, you know, this is set up. So you're like, okay, we'll get to the gig and let's see what you're going to do with it. And actually, once he does that, there's lots of moments that really are, I liked all the sentimentality. There are lots of moments that were really very funny, even when he's trying to figure out which airport to fly into. And he's, you know, asking the guy, well, you know, what about Dallas? And the guy says, yeah, Dallas is in Texas. He says, well, what, what about Houston? Yeah, that's another country. And for all this is supposed to be West Texas, they actually filmed it in New Mexico, which I thought was a funny detail because <laughs> Texas is big. You couldn't find any place to actually shoot it in Texas. Not that that really matters because, you know, it's a movie. But let's go back to the title for a second, Mike. I don't think that that title is going to bring people into the theaters to see the movie that this is. I think the title is a problem. I think the title is a major problem. Think about all the movies that would have a title like Vengeance. What do you expect? I mean, Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson back in the 70s or Liam Neeson now, right, where, you know, somebody has harmed the family and I'm going to get revenge and so on. It's that kind of single word title that, you know, clues a certain genre and certainly a certain audience. The title is so far removed from what you would want, what you would expect in a case like this. Admittedly, within the storyline, yes, you know, the, the brother in particular thinks that his sister's been murdered and we got to get revenge. And yeah, that's built into the storyline. But that's not the real appeal of the movie, is it? What Marie said before is very accurate. It's almost like a screwball comedy where you need a hook. You need a, you have a premise and you need the hook to get you from here to there. It may be implausible. It may be at least unlikely. It may be hasty in the development. It may be, as Marie said very astutely before, like a hole in the plot. But at a certain point, it's the so what. It's like, okay, it did bother, I noticed it and it bothered me, but you know what, once you've leapt over that, once you've gotten into the storyline itself, and in this case, once you've gotten into West Texas, okay, New Mexico, once you've gotten to that other place, I never completely put that behind me. It was always nagging, but it didn't nag as much because it's like in a screwball comedy where, okay, they're going to do something goofy and illogical to get you there. Now you're there. So enjoy the ride and now you're there. But it seems to me that Novak is such a, when I say facile writer, I know I tend to use that word as it's generally used negatively, but he writes well in what I call a kind of um, snarky, cringe comedy way. And the film is full of that. And I think the title should have better reflected that. There are so many titles, hypothetically, we could probably come up with that would be more accurate representations of what the film is like. And let me now briefly double back on a point Marie made a, a while back, namely that 
this is the kind of what's called cringe comedy where all the characters, almost all of them are flawed, but in kind of like eccentric and endearing ways. Think back to The Office even in terms of these quirky characters and all their foolishness and foibles and so on. So in a film like, uh, yes, I'll call it Vengeance because that's what it calls itself. In Vengeance, from the very first scene, when you see B.J. Novak's character, Ben, He's so unlikable in some ways. He's so snooty and so full of himself and is, you know, misogynistic and just fill in the blanks there. A guy who's just, you know, too sophisticated for his own good. When he gets to Texas, initially it can seem sort of cartoonish the way the family characters are presented. I mean, they really are live action cartoons. And it always I thought was a bit of a problem in the film. But to its credit, as the film goes along, they are more humanized. He likes them more. They actually have character traits you might not have expected initially. They're actually smarter than, than, than some of the initial scenes might have suggested. And that generally plays to the favor of the film. And so my feeling is in a film like this one, you want to present these characters and then kind of fill them out. And the film, I don't think, is completely successful there. And one reason is, as I say, I think it is kind of, I'll use the word facile again, I think it is kind of superficial in the way it does this, sometimes overstated, sometimes unconvincing, at least borderline. But, you know, my feeling is as it goes along, it doesn't really go deeper with the material. And what it's trying to do at some level is make larger comments about the nature of social media, the red state versus blue state phenomenon, and so on. And it's kind of sort of there, but not fully developed. And my feeling is that the film falls short in that respect. It could have gone so much further with all that. It eventually just sort of coasts on not just easy jokes, and I appreciate the Whataburger references, stuff like that. It doesn't just coast on easy jokes, but the sentimentality of it as it goes further along. Yes, I have a heart, and my heart went out actually to how he bonds with the family and so on, but I wish it had a little bit of a tougher edge in places there. It just seems to me that it, it hits like a, a basically sweet spot and then just gets a little too sweet, at least for my taste. You make really, really good points. And um, I did want to mention before I move on to the other movie uh, that Ashton Kutcher is in this and actually was surprisingly good. The movie actually was be all the better for the fact that he was in it. So don't mess with Texas. And let's move on to our next movie, which is DC League of Super Pets which is about, well, I think one of the reasons I liked this animated feature is because, you know, you can't go wrong with a buddy movie or duos, you know, pairs are satisfying. And what we get in this is the pets of superheroes, pets who are superheroes. And it makes for lots of, of fun gags and it's got lots of voice talent that you will recognize. It's got The Rock, it's got Kevin Hart, it has Kate McKinnon, several people in it so it feels it sounds like you're spending time with old friends that you recognize and Kevin Hart's character gets the best lines and it has kind of takes that whole superhero genre into a different area where you get to it's more like a Saturday morning cartoon treatment where you're kind of looking at things from the animals points of view. This movie has everybody in it. And Marie's mentioned most of the principal voice talent. It's got people beyond that. I had a, a more lukewarm response to it. I, I wasn't as enthusiastic about it. I'll say right up front that this is a film that's very much targeted to kids. And, and we need to emphasize that because so many of the animated films today obviously are meant for that general audience you know, kids, their parents, you know, older adults, whatever. And that's a whole other discussion about how animation now has that really broad-based audience. 
Not that this film doesn't have that, but this is a PG rated film that is clearly aimed at kids. There are a few references in it, a few jokes that I think are aimed more at the kids' parents, you know, like a, a kind of storyline reference to the Warriors in 1979 movie, things like that. But those are incidentals. But in whole, this is a film that's really targeted at young kids. It's almost like a, and I don't mean, I don't mean this in a condescending way, I mean it in a descriptive way. It's almost like a gateway movie for really small kids to get to know their superheroes or know them better. Because this is the whole Justice League. It's like, you know, you mentioned, you know, Batman, Superman, on and on and on. They're like all here. Now, one reason why I had a lukewarm response to this, Marie and I've talked about this. So many of the superhero movies nowadays are overloaded. You have so many principal characters, so many interwoven storylines. It's always jumping around here and there. This movie does that, and I would say times two. By that, I mean you have a full roster of superheroes, and then the superheroes all have their pets or pets that are somehow linked up to them. And I can keep track of it. I have a scorecard. I can do that. But it seems to me this movie's always jumping around that way. It's always busy that way. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for like a really young audience where you want to have these animated superheroes and then their pets and all that boisterous action. But for me, it, it sort of wore thin after a while. It was just like it was overly busy. It was just like too much. It was almost cacophonous at times of how much was colliding that way between superheroes and super pets and so on. Marie, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree with you. I felt like they were trying very hard to do something new. What I think it sort of failed at in terms of animated features that are made into films rather than just Saturday morning cartoons is it didn't really move the needle in terms of innovation in animation. It's your pretty stand. I mean, it's all done in 3D on computers. And I did like, say, Keanu Reeves as the voice of Batman. It's a lot of things that are sort of wonderfully ironic for the adults sitting there watching it. And there were some really funny moments and some satisfying moments. Like, for example, Olivia Wilde plays Lois Lane. Now, she had uh, a decade earlier, she screen tested for the same role in 2013's Man of Steel, which went to Amy Adams. So having her be the voice of Lois Lane is just one of those nice things where you're like, that just works on that level where you're glad she finally got to, to do the role. And the interplay between the characters, it's predictable, but it is enjoyable in the way it's predictable because, you know, they set up those friend situations and then you imperil everybody and then you have to discover, you know, who your friends really are. It's like classic storytelling for children, but I thought it still worked on the level for, for adults. Yeah, I think it works primarily for children. And for me, honestly, that's what really matters here. That, that's the target audience. The fact that it's the kids who really enjoy it and their parents, I think, will more or less probably like it. And that's something to, to uh, you know, to trumpet, to, to point out that, you know, it, it really is a, a movie for parents with young kids. I mean, it's, it's really safe that way and it's really engaging. And, you know, we still have a, a market for Saturday afternoon uh, matinees. You know, even though the animation sort of at that level, what Marie alluded to, that's not a bad thing necessarily. You know, let the kids really be pulled into this. And how can you say no to superheroes and super pets? You know, that's a one-two combination for sure. The other thing was that the, the jokes kind of come fast and furious. So this is probably more fun at home when you've got the DVD and you can turn the subtitles on because a lot of the things were flying by before I could even make notes about them. But I loved the way Superman's dog, you know, is already sort of a celebrity. And so every time he meets somebody, he, he thinks that they want his autograph or he'll say, you know, pup, pup and away. There's just so many great puns that then, they, like I said, they come fast and furious. So they sort of fly by you and you, and you know that 
somebody put a lot of effort into making those things witty. And I did notice that a lot of the characters had to be the straight man so that Kevin Hart's character could get the good line. I don't know if that was written into his contract or if he just, that character was just meant to be the kind of the heart of the movie rather than Superman's dog. Anyway, Mike, I'll give you the last word because we're on our last minute for the show. Well, it is the heart of the movie, as, as you say, and this, this truly is the fast and the furious of super pet movies. So, so that, that's the blurb that we'll recommend it to children. That's a great way to sum that up. So that brings us to the end of the show. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.